0: This is Diane Godfrey. This podcast is meant for entertainment purposes only. If you need legal representation, please consult an attorney. I do not have a law degree. Over the years, many people have contacted me seeking legal advice. I am flattered they elevated me to having a JD, which is a law degree, but I am not qualified to dispense any legal advice.
1: This is All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from inside the courthouse, from the lady who wrote everything down. This is Jordan Rich reminding you to all rise. All right, Diane, tell us who was murdered and when did it happen?
0: Well, today we're going to talk about the murder of Hilda DiVincenzo. She was an 88-year-old widow who lived by herself in her own home in the Prattville section of Chelsea, Mass. She was 88 years old at the time of her death. For anyone that isn't in Boston, she owned and lived in the second floor of a triple decker. Now, a triple decker, anyone from Boston knows they're everywhere. They're in Southie, which is South Boston. They're all over Dorchester, and they're in East Boston. And they're three unit homes. They're not very pretty, they just look like a tall box, kind
1: mm-hmm. of. Right.
0: And they always have a front porch. And on the back of the house, as you well know, Jordan, they have each unit has a porch. It's important to understand the setup of the triple-decker because it becomes relevant to the story that we're about to tell, right?
1: That's right. That's a triple-decker. And I always decker. have a
0: cellar because we're north of the Mason-Dixon and we have cellars up here, but um, that's what happened. She lived in the second unit. Her husband had died and she was found murdered on July 7th, 2013. They theorize she was killed on July 3rd, 2013.
1: So she was there for a while before...
0: Four discovered. days. And mind you, it Ooh. was an unbelievable. Boston was in the midst of a horrible heat wave.
1: Just imagine what that uh, felt and smelled like at that point.
0: Well, funny you say that because I remember the testimony of the firefighter that entered the home. The man that ended up getting convicted of the crime, his name was Felix Melendez. He is the one that called the fire department to the home. And he's the one that found the body with the firefighter. And the firefighter said, As soon as the door to her apartment opened, I could smell a stench of a decaying body.
1: Well, what actually was the cause of death, Diane?
0: Well, she was strangled and beaten to death. But in the words of the medical examiner who took the stand, every trial, a medical examiner comes and opines as to cause of death. And to quote the medical examiner, cause of death was compression to the neck and torso, causing fractures to her thyroid cartilage, ribs, Spine and sternum. Hmm.
1: By the way, you mentioned to me that uh, she had one gold earring and one missing. Is that correct?
0: Yes. When she was found, she was found lying on her stomach and her head was tilted to the side. And one earring was in her ear. And Mm -hmm. the second gold earring was found later in the neighboring town in Golden Oldies. Pawn shop.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Now, let's talk about the setting once again. You mentioned the Prattville section of Chelsea. What kind of neighborhood is it overall? You
0: know, it's funny. Chelsea gets a bad rap. I love Chelsea. Um, It's the proximity to Boston is terrific and it has a lot of really cool stuff in it. And it was on the Revere Chelsea line and they call this section Prattville. It's on the other side of Route 16, which will mean nothing to people that aren't from this area. And it's funny. She did live in a triple-decker, but it stuck out like a sore thumb. There were all single-family homes around it. So it was odd that it was there directly across the street from her home. Is Newbridge Cafe? It is. Do you know it, Jordan?
1: Oh yeah, I've heard I've heard of the Newbridge Cafe. Sure. I mean,
0: we'll go over there. It's right over the Tobin Bridge from Boston, mm-hmm. and um, they're famous. And it's stuck in the 1970s time warp, but in a good way. And it's got like framed photos of like the Celts and you know the Boston Bruins, but right. they've got a terrific bar. The food is outstanding. They're known for their um, their lamb tips. They make a phenomenal homemade dressing, which now they bottle. And they have a secret barbecue sauce. It's the coolest place. We
1: should let the audience know that uh, you have a long history of restaurant reviews in your background, and you love you love to explore new places. So that hold that for a future podcast.
0: Doesn't my double chin know it? If there's a carbohydrate, <laughs> there's a double, there's a carbohydrate I know where to find it. But um, it's no frills. If you want to get wined and dined and, you know, and smooth, don't go there. It's, it's a terrific place.
1: Almost sounds like the setting for a Boston-based movie. They could film <laughs> there and it would, it would cover the waterfront quite well. Well, let's get back to the crime here. And yes. uh, you mentioned the cause of death. Let's examine what happened. And first of all, you mentioned already the alleged, at this point, murderer, Felix Melendez. Tell me more about him.
0: He comes in the courtroom, right? Now, Now, mind you, he was tried three times, the first two ended up in hung juries. And he was convicted of receiving stolen property on, I don't know if it was the first or the second case. So when he was tried the third time around for murder in the first degree, he ultimately was convicted. But I think the jury had a hard time because from the date to the days leading up to the murder, there were a lot of people going in and out of that house.
1: That's where an attorney talks to a jury and suggests that there may be uh, reasons to acquit, right? Because there isn't enough evidence.
0: He is spot on. But you know what? He had a tremendous lawyer. I know him personally. I've been on a lot of cases with him. He is the best in the business and he was a zealous advocate. So he got, I feel, a fair shake, you know.
1: What, What kind of a guy was he, just from your vantage point, seeing him in the courthouse, In the courtroom, I mean, image-wise.
0: All right, don't laugh. You know what my first impression was? He was a dead ringer for the movie actor, Jack Black. I don't know if you know Jack Black. (laughs) Of course,
1: yes. High
0: Fidelity, School of Rock. School of Rock, yeah. Tenacious D. Mm -hmm. All I could think of was Jack Black, 38 years old. Come to find out he was a junkie. You know, they don't have to prove motive, but maybe that was the reason why
1: so you were saying about the, the trials, there was, there was more than one for him?
0: Three. Three altogether. I was on two of them. Okay. I was on the last two. So there was one trial I didn't know about. And then I was assigned to his second trial, which was a hung jury. And the third time, he was convicted.
1: So he must have had a good lawyer the first two times to- Well, uh... I
0: know- that lawyer had him for the last two trials. I don't know who, Mm. if he had him for the first trial, but he's a terrific defense lawyer.
1: You've got some stats that you supplied me with, and maybe you can share them with the audience. Um, And this is again, inside a courthouse, what happens. Trial number two, how many days did it last and uh, how many people were involved?
0: Well, this is just to give you an idea of how different it is from television. The trial, trial number two that I was on took us 16 days in total three days, three full days to pick a jury. The last four days were deliberations. And we called 28 witnesses to the stand. And um, due to my shaky high school math, it might have been 27 or 29, I don't know, but 28. And then we entered 151 exhibits into evidence. When I sit in the front of the courtroom, there were so many exhibits around me, I have to jump over evidence bags. and.
1: Let's examine that Briefly, and tell people exactly what you mean by exhibits, because they might have missed that. I, I know what you mean, but for listeners who are unaware, what does it mean?
0: An exhibit is something that is offered into evidence, and it is received into evidence. And I take like a little yellow sticker. It has a number on it. Naturally, we start with one, two, three. It can be a map, a piece of paper, a letter, a driver's license, a gun, a knife, in a murder trial, you always put the decedent's clothing, and that only—that's just a fancy word for the person that's got murdered. Decedent—I right. never right. heard of it before I worked mm-hmm. at the court. You'll put in, and it's really upsetting because, like, they'll hand you on a big poster board, like someone's T-shirt. It's drenched in blood. I have to put mm-hmm. a sticker on it. And I'm like, oh, oh
1: wow! Yeah. It,
0: it,
1: it becomes real it at that—it becomes real at that point for you. I mean, and for everybody in the courtroom.
0: It does. And getting back to an earlier podcast when we had spoken about how this job stays with you, I have never been to that restaurant, New Bridge Cafe, ever since. I get out of the car and I look up at that house where she was murdered. And I look in the second floor and the lights are on and someone's living there. Mm. And it just stays with you. It takes away a little bit of the fun every time I go to that restaurant. Well,
1: in a way, it's a a connection that you form with the victim because she lived right across the way and no doubt attended there occasionally, as you did.
0: Not a high crime spot by a fine neighborhood. We would never expect a murder to take place there, but it did.
1: Let's talk about the victim. Uh, Often victims are forgotten about uh, in in history, but you have detail on the victim that I think would be interesting. Hilda. You
0: know, I I would like to just pause here and give a moment of, I don't know, just this woman, you have never heard of her, obviously, Jordan. Mm -hmm. And I can't underscore how many times in that courthouse, like a murder like this will come in and nobody really knew her except for like her little like four or five people. And the murder comes and goes and the guy goes to jail and it's but she she was a a person and she mattered. And, you know, it's her son got on the stand and testified in the both trials that I was on. And if I don't know her, but I feel like I did, because, of course, they put her photos into evidence and she looked just like my mother, your mother, your aunt, just a nice woman. Mm. And it, it breaks your heart. There's something so wrong with she was old. She was in her home that her husband worked hard for. And she's in the twilight of her life. How outrageous yeah. to be murdered in her dining with room. With
1: such violence, too. I mean, it sounded oh. like a horrific
0: It's so attack. beyond the pale. It's yeah. just like, what? To wrap your mind around it. But her son, I didn't know the victim personally. But from seeing that son on the stand, she had to be a fine woman because he was a class act.
1: You get to know about a decedent, really, based on people's recollections and their lifestyle. You say that it was put out that she was a a very neat and tidy and organized lady. And that was discussed, wasn't it?
0: it? It really was. And the district attorney, I personally kind of got the feeling that she was so... You know, the place was immaculate and so in order, like military style, you know, just but it was so she was such a neat Nick. I think it w- it contributed, unfortunately, to her demise because she had in her kitchen all these little hooks and she had every key hung up on each hook. And she had a designation on each hook of what it was, too. And there were so many people in that kitchen. Someone easily could have swiped one of those keys And at a later time, come back Mm. in. She was so organized that, but she was so trusting. And I think because of her age, she was from a different time that you didn't really bet people.
1: Which is also the case with people that age who are in relatively good health. They don't want to be leaving their home, the place they grew up in, the place they built. They have roots and they just feel comfortable there.
0: Uh, And, you know, in the testimony of her son, he had gone up to Melrose, which is a lovely community, which is close by, and he had put money down on a condo for her, but he said she dug her heels in and she wasn't moving. That's where she lived with her husband, and she put the kibosh on it.
1: Let's talk a little bit about uh, what might have led to this in terms of opportunity for the perpetrator. Because you, you mentioned it was a very hot spell, but you also mentioned that uh, you know this individual had— inclinations to steal and do other things. But tell me how it all went down.
0: Well, according to her son, she had lived for, I don't know, 40 years in that home. And, you know, she had worked for 15 years as a clerk in Bradley's, which is a local department store. And now she was retired and living alone. Now, her son said the first floor and the third floor were empty for years. There was a grand niece that had lived in the first floor i guess she was a college kid she moved out but she never wanted really anyone in the home but she got it in her head that she wanted i guess a few extra bucks so she she had her son post a craigslist ad for tenants her son thought she was just going to rent out the first floor unbeknownst to him she ended up rent- renting out the first floor and the third floor and a mere day, few days later, she was murdered.
1: Mm. So she was in the in the middle of those two floors. Yes, she was. She right. was on
0: the second floor of three floors.
1: Okay. And the third floor tenants were uh, Melendez and his girlfriend. Is that right?
0: Yes. And her grown son, who was wearing a GPS bracelet. He had been let out of jail. So he was being monitored by the probation, probation department
1: reason to be a little suspicious of people with bracelets and things like that. But also the fact, I think you said that uh, maybe they weren't exactly um, proficient paying their rent. Is that right?
0: Well, after the fact, it came, you know, when when the detectives and everything, you know, did some snooping around, not snooping around, but, you know, checking it out, they had been evicted from somewhere else local. So they gave a check to Hilda Vincenzo, the poor obviously, the woman that was murdered, and it bounced. But from what I remember from the testimony, the girlfriend of the accused made good and gave Hilda $2,000 cash Hmm. to make good on it. So they moved in on the third floor. She rented the first floor out to a guy named Alejandro, his girlfriend and their two children. But When he moved in, he said, Hilda, I'm not moving in right away. Is it okay if I make some renovations on the home? Alejandro was there for four or five days getting the first floor ready. And he allegedly heard the murder while he was working on July 3rd.
1: And that's the date of the murder. We should remind people.
0: Yes. And it was in the afternoon around 3 p.m.,
1: and did he see the uh, alleged murderer at that point? Did he actually see him on the premises?
0: According to Alejandro, the first floor gentleman that was getting the apartment ready, he testified that he came to the home at one o'clock that afternoon, July 3rd, to do some more work. He encountered the accused in the hallway who was seemed very agitated. And Felix Melendez said, Hilda was driving me crazy. She's having me do all kinds of stuff around this house. So that didn't hang because later in the testimony, the son said they had a handyman who was Johnny on the spot that helped them for years. And according to the defendant, he told the first floor tenant that Hilda had said, I need you to do electrical work for me. That also doesn't hang. He wasn't a qualified electrician. I'd just like to add something at this point. The day of the murder at 1 p.m., when Alejandro arrived at the premises, he testified that he locked himself out of his first floor apartment, that he went up the stairs to the second floor, knocked on Hilda's door, and spoke with her. He claims he never entered the apartment. She gave him a key, and he went back downstairs. So that was the involvement that he had. But interestingly... He also testified that around 3 p.m. as he was working on the first floor, that he heard a thud and some sort of a commotion and then silence. He waited for someone to come down the stairs and nobody did. He got spooked. He got really scared. He testified he went out into his vehicle and it was so hot. He put the AC on, called his girlfriend and asked her what he should do. He never called the cops and I thought that was crazy. I found out through the grapevine, this was never substantiated and it was never before the jury, but I heard that he was an illegal alien and he was afraid of being deported. And that's why he never called the police when he heard something that happened above him that didn't sound right to him. And he stayed in his car till it was time to pick his girlfriend up from work. And he played Candy Crush video game on his cell phone in the car and never went back into the building that day.
1: So there's a lot of uh, speculation early on that uh, Mr. Melendez is up to no good. Was he arrested quickly or uh, tell me about that?
0: No, he was not. As I said, she laid there for four days before she was even um, found on July 7th. But it was a crazy way she was found. I mean, a crazy set of circumstances. And then he wasn't arrested for a few more days till after she was found.
1: Right. What led to his arrest, though? To, obviously, this came out in the trial, but was it the witness that said, uh, I saw him hanging around or what?
0: No. What happened was, um, funny thing is, Alejandro, who lived on the first floor, the day he saw the defendant at 1 p.m. in the hallway. Now, mind you, that no one could enter that home without buzzing in. So you'd have to have a key. There was the police never found any sort of forced entry. So it had to be someone that had a key or she knew that was let in. And when they went to check all the windows and the porches and all that, none of them were disturbed. The curtains weren't disturbed. There were no broken windows. So I can just put that in as an aside. But um, how I'm sorry, you did ask me.
1: Well, I was just wondering how the police locked on to him. And of course, we're going to get to the fire department story, which is... (laughs) To talk about criminals with uh, low IQ, uh, we'll get into that. But let's let's focus a little bit on that because uh, a couple of days passed, and you say July seventh. It's about quarter to one in the morning. Um, there's yeah. smoke smelled by the girlfriend, right? Melendez's girlfriend.
0: Melendez's girlfriend, according to the testimony, his girlfriend smelled spo- smoke and went down into the basement, into the cellar, to investigate. Melendez called 911 and said, "There's a fire here at this Washington Ave address." Meanwhile, as the fire department is en route, he takes some sort of a cleaning agent and extinguishes the fire himself. When the police arrive, everyone—he, I guess—he frantically went through the house, screaming, "Fire! Fire!" So everyone dumps out onto the sidewalk in their pajamas, and he says to the to the police. I put it out myself and we went to that scene in each murder. And I went into that cellar and there was charred walls. So he had started a fire and I think he started it from what I can figure is he wanted to get the fire department there to find Hilda's body. I'd also like to add at this point that I do remember a representative of the phone company. I think it was Verizon got on the stand and he testified that when he went into the cellar, of the premises that when he looked on the box on the wall, where all the phone stuff was, somebody it looked to him, had manually ripped all the phone cords out. So Hilda's um, landline had been disengaged by whoever was in the cellar and and callously, I mean, they were a mess the way he testified that someone just grabbed them and tore them to shreds. So if she was in peril, whoever killed her must've thought ahead that if she was still alive, she wouldn't have been able to get to her phone. If she did get to her phone, it would have been disabled because of whoever defaced the Verizon wires in the cellar.
1: He wanted the body to be found.
0: Well, he decided as soon as the fire department got there, he acted like he was a hero.
1: Ah.
0: They said, where's Hilda? Everyone left the house. Have you seen Hilda? And everyone said, we haven't seen her for a few days. Melendez goes trucking up the stairs and the fire department said, what are you doing? And he kept going up. They followed him. He starts banging on Hilda's apartment door screaming, Hilda, Hilda. And the fire captain said, don't do that. The fire department went out to see if they could gain access from the porch. Meanwhile, Melendez puts his hand through a pane in the door because I guess at one time EMS had to make a emergency there and they had, made a hole which the sun had temporarily fixed but they were going to get it fixed fixed but they mm-hmm. hadn't so melendez punches a hole through her door and screams to the fire department i'm in the fire department comes running according to the fire department he jumps into the apartment screaming hilda and they could see like a blue gray light of a flicker of a tv that was on the defendant goes into the dining room and said i found her and it's a crazy thing. He led the fire <laughs> department to the body.
1: Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So he's trying to uh, come off again as the man who saved everybody in the building and the man who discovered poor Hilda.
0: There are about seven or eight lines from the testimony of the fire captain. Question. Did he tell you anything about what happened to the fire since you didn't see any fire? Answer. He had extinguished it himself. Question. Question. What, if anything, did he tell you about how he came to be in the basement after the fire? Answer, I think his girlfriend smelled smoke and he went to investigate and found it in the basement. Question, did he tell you what he was doing at the time that his girlfriend alerted that she smelled smoke? Answer, he had been getting ready to take a shower. Question, and did he tell you at all how it was that he extinguished the fire in the basement? Answer, He used a cleaning agent.
1: Which, by the way, sounds like the exact wrong thing to do when you douse a fire.
0: (laughs) I'm no scholar, okay? (laughs) But I mean, really? I mean, there's so many things wrong with this story that, I mean, where do you begin?
1: Now, what was the scene in the apartment when the police came to investigate? Obviously, you got the dead body, the poor lady. But was, was stuff ransacked? Were there overturned tables and drawers and things like that? Well,
0: anyone that went in there noted how incredibly organized it was, but her bedroom had been ransacked. The the sheets were off the bed. There was a strong box that had important papers that was never recovered. Um, Someone had taken a big drawer out and dumped that out. Um, They did recover on a bag in her bedroom, one of the fingerprints from Felix Melendez. But he had been working there, supposedly off and on for a few days. Mm. So who's to say he didn't have that, his hand on that, you know, that, um, what, you know, like, I think it was like a CVS bag.
1: Interesting, interesting little sidebar. There were other fingerprints, too. And I imagine this is the case with most crime scenes. I mean, people do handle things and do uh, appear in rooms, I mean, for whatever reason, right?
0: Yes, Um, they they said that even though the fingerprint evidence revealed Mr. Melendez's, you know, fingerprint on the plastic bag in the bedroom, there was no time stamp on the bag. So it could have been there before the murder. But they also found a couple of other fingerprints that did not come back to Mr. Melendez, and it was never determined whose they were.
1: It seems to me that uh, robbery is the most likely motive at this point in our story. I won't want to jump ahead here because I don't know the outcome of all of it, but uh, things were missing and police take note of that right away, don't they?
0: Yes. And the son was wonderful about, you know, filling them in of what was missing. Um, As I said before, her gold, one of the gold earrings was missing. She always wore a gold chain with the letter H for Hilda around her neck. That was gone. A wedding band with a row of diamonds was gone and her engagement ring was gone. Um, there was some costume jewelry gone, her her checkbook, her cell phone. I don't think some of those items were ever recovered. I don't think the costume jewelry or the checkbook.
1: But we get now to the uh, the part of the case that gets broken wide open when the police go to the Golden Oldies Pawn Shop in a town called Everett, Massachusetts. And is that sounds like normal procedure. They check the pawn shops to see if something's been pawned once it's been stolen. They got lucky at this point.
0: You know, the detectives, I remember on the stand, one of them said, we decided to go to local pawn shops. And I guess when they walked into Golden Oldies Pawn Shop on Route 16 in Everett, as you said, they said, listen, this is a fishing expedition and this is just a long shot, but we're going to ask you a question. Have you received any jewelry in the last few days? Blah, blah, blah. The guy turns around and he comes back with envelopes that had just been pawned they were, they were in queue to get put into the computer, logged in. But because of the 4th of July holiday, they just didn't get to it yet. Sure enough, bingo, they found her, I believe it was her wedding band. No, I think it was her engagement ring. Mm-hmm. And one of her earrings.
1: Which... Again, suggests that this is not a very smart individual. <laughs> you have well, to he used pre-
0: his own name and his own his ID.
1: Own ID. So you, the question is, you know, why wouldn't you just try to hawk something on the streets or find a fence or something?
0: Well, I think defense counsel said if he was guilty, wouldn't he have hawked it on the street rather than go to a pawn shop, which required him to show an ID? But as I look at my notes here to refresh my memory, there was a gold chain, a gold hoop earring, and a white gold wedding band. And he got ninety bloody dollars for that. Are you kidding that me? Is
1: just tragic. It makes Can it you, all makes it all the more horrific to think about that. I think
0: um, I blew ninety dollars in stock and Shop yesterday. I mean, <laughs> come on.
1: Was there any DNA evidence collected, Diane?
0: You know what's funny? This was not a DNA case, which baffled everybody. There was no, D- and as soon as they found that body, they had crime scene come in and the state police crime lab. There was no no. DNA whatsoever found on her. Did I mean, did the murderer wear gloves?
1: Hmm. And was he alone? Um, because you mentioned a couple of guys at the pawn shop. What what did we find out about Melendez? Did he act alone?
0: He was with a guy that took the stand. And I firmly believe the guy had nothing to do with the murder. That's mm-hmm. just me from what I saw. And but he went to the pawn shop where they had met in like a rehab, a drug rehab at one point. And they were together. They were junkies. I think they went and bought drugs with the $90 right after they hawked the... Uh,
1: wouldn't be the a bit items. surprised. So let's get to the trial uh, because you're there throughout every moment uh, doing what you do as a court reporter. Uh, what stands out about him or about the trial itself?
0: Well, you know, I think because of the way the testimony went, first of all, the overarching theme in my mind was how... Can this happen? And you know, this woman in the twilight of her life, in her own—I couldn't get my mind around it. Mm. Like, there's so many things wrong with this. It's so egregious that this happened to to a woman. It's just, you know, Mm. it just—it boggles your mind.
1: So there was doubt cast by the attorney. That's what they're supposed to do, of course. Of course, provide reasonable doubt. But uh, the third trial was the charm, in a sense, to convict this man, to get him off the streets, correct?
0: Yes. And I think it's a heavy burden to place on the citizens. And I think they thought long and hard and and gave it their their consideration to the fullest to come up with this, you know, this verdict.
1: Well, as you say, ruling out other people, uh, those who had access, those who had possible access to the key to the house, all those people that could have been mixed up in it, uh, or at least to cloudy the case, they had to be exonerated and all this had to be fleshed out.
0: Well, here's the problem. On July 3rd, when she was murdered, the Meals on Wheels lady came into the home at 11 a.m. I'm not in any way intimating it was her, but I'm trying to simply pull out, put the fact that many people came in and out of that home. From what I remember, when she put the ad in Craigslist, she might have had other people. I can't remember now, but I think she had other people that came and answered the ad. So there could have been other people there. Mm-hmm. They could have taken a key out of the off the wall when she wasn't looking. I mean, so you've got that. Then you've got Felix. How do you know Felix didn't let somebody in the house? The first guy on the first floor, was he alone? Did he let someone in the house?
1: Alejandro. This right. goes,
0: and right. then. You have 28-year-old son that was on the GPS bracelet, yeah. who they grilled L- extensively. Which cross-
1: really brings the point home that these are not open and shut, easy ways to determine guilt or innocence. You, first of all, you're dealing with a man's life in this case, as well as the victim, but
0: absolutely,
1: a lot of detail in a real trial. A lot of stuff is is examined, and the jury. Tell me about the jury. How long it took for them to de- deliberate?
0: Well, on the second trial, when they finally came up with the, um, you know, the inconclusive result that they couldn't reach a verdict, that took four days. Mm. But I believe when he was convicted, it took two days, two full days. But, you know, the son that was lived on the third floor with Felix Melendez and his mother, he was to me, he struck me as a good kid. I call him a kid. He's 28. But he had been he was a nail tech in a salon downtown. He just seemed like he, whatever he was in jail for, I can't remember, and I'm not saying any crime is good, but it wasn't like a big heinous crime. It wasn't I a
1: capital it, crime in this case, right?
0: No. And and the funny thing was, they asked him if he had been around that home during the day on July 3rd, the day of the murder. He said no. But at the commonwealth's expense, they went to where GPS headquarters is, and they reenacted everywhere that GPS bracelet uh went the whole day. Do you know how long that took to do in court? Hours mm. to reenact every single beep on this map where mm. this kid went.
1: But it proved that he was what, where he said he was.
0: You know, it did. But I have to add two things to that. I'm in no way intimating that he committed murder, but he said he was nowhere near the house. And at one point in the day, he was near the house. Oh. It doesn't look like he entered the house. Maybe he was just scared and just said, I wasn't near the house." But he was near the house at one point in the day. And secondly, there that GPS is pretty spot on, but we have had cases in court. It's someone is at home and it says they're somewhere. There's been some glitches where it's not accurate. You know, I'd just like to add, I remember this is just like something a court reporter can relate to. Um, the young gentleman on the stand, the son of the woman that on the third floor, he lived there. He was getting grilled extensively by defense counsel, extensively. And I remember he was exasperated and under his breath. I mean, he was sitting right on top of me. He was in a sing-song manner saying, desperate. And I caught it. No one else did. And he just kept saying, desperate. In other words, they were trying to pin the murder on him and they weren't getting anywhere. And I just thought that was funny, not funny, but just a funny in a strange way, not funny in a laughable way.
1: Let me ask you uh, also about what we hear about in evidence all the time now, and that's uh, someone's cell phone or someone's computer. There is an issue with this case involving a search warrant for uh, Mr. Melendez's computer, I guess.
0: Well, get this. I don't know if he was a stupid criminal or what, but when they went to Golden Oldies and they saw his ID, the copy of his ID, they issued a, a search warrant for the third floor apartment in the triple decker. And under his mattress was Hilda DiVincenzo's wedding ring.
1: Yeah, that's uh, pretty hard to, def- to deny. Pretty hard to deny that chicanery had, had ensued. Wow. And what about the computer? Was there anything well, interesting about that?
0: Yes, what they uh, from what I can see they always seize the computer. Mm-hmm. And they and they can go back and see everywhere you traveled on that computer. Evidently, Felix Melendez, after he killed her and before she was found, he was googling murder in Chelsea, woman found dead, to see if anyone had found her and had reported that she was dead. He must have Why would he do that?
1: That's pretty bizarre. Yeah, Yeah.
0: and when they asked him what he was doing with her wedding ring under his mattress, his story was he was outside the home and in the yard saw, I think it was a black trash bag on the floor, on the ground, full of jewelry, and he found it and just kept it.
1: One more question that's key. Uh, Where is Mr. Melendez as we speak? What was his sentence?
0: He is on an all-expenses-paid vacation you know, compliments of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. He is serving life without the possibility of parole in one of our correctional institutions. So he
1: was convicted of first degree murder in that case.
0: Absolutely. He was.
1: And what what was the reaction like from the family members or anybody in the courtroom? Was there a visible reaction when that came down?
0: No, you know, it's funny. And there wasn't a huge crowd there. It was, I mean, You know who you really see a lot of emotion? The jurors that render the verdict. Mm. They cry. They know they're doing justice and the right thing, but you can't believe how what a heavy thing that is for them to deliver that, even though they feel it's just. That's a huge thing to do to another human being.
1: When you do serve, it's an awesome, with a capital A, responsibility.
0: You know, when it comes to um, child rape, rape and murder, The judges are more forgiving if if you just candidly straight up say, hey, listen, I can't handle this. If you're earnest and, you know, they they can sense. And if you really can't do it, they are not going to subject you to that.
1: Well, Diane, an incredible case that would have gone unnoticed, but you brought it back for this podcast. And I think you gave some sense of respect and honor to the victim telling her story, her side of the story.
0: Every time I go up that street, every time I go to that restaurant, it's just so sad. You know, Jordan, I'd like to close with this thought. Famously, John Adams once said, facts are stubborn things. And I think it really hits home in this case, because when you add all the facts up, look what you've got.
1: Before we close the courtroom door on this podcast, we remind you that All Rise with Diane Godfrey is available on all podcast platforms. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate, and review this podcast. You've been listening to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from inside the courthouse from the lady who wrote everything down. Case dismissed.